Are you ready for God's Word today? Yes, we are. Grab your Bible. We are in a series called Christ versus Culture. Christ versus Culture. And so grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to stand in just a minute as we read the Word of God, but I'm going to catch you up on what's going on in Matthew chapter 22 because I always like for us to have the context of the verse that we read. How many know that if you have a text without a context, you can have a pretext, right? And, um, and if you have a text without a context, you get conned. <laughs> Come on, somebody. And so we always want to know what's going on when we talk about the Word of God. Matthew 22, this is Passion Week. So this is the week between Palm, what we know as Palm Sunday or the triumphant entry into Jerusalem where Jesus comes in riding on a donkey's colt. And it's, it's that week before he is crucified. Um, and so that is the week that we're reading here, Matthew 22. It's in that week. In Matthew chapter 22, it starts off with Jesus kind of giving a parable of the wedding feast. Um, and then it works its way into an inquisition where he is being questioned by Pharisees and Sadducees. And they ask him three questions. The first is about paying taxes. The next is about the resurrection. And then the greatest, what's the greatest commandment? Now, to understand Pharisees and Sadducees, and without getting you bored in, out of your mind into history, but I do think you should know this. So uh, in the second century BC, around 160 to 167, somewhere right in there, there was the, what's known as the Maccabean Revolt. It was because the, the um, Seleucid Empire had taken over you know, the Jews, um, and they were a very Greekified culture, so lots of Greek idols and sexuality and all types of stuff, and they were feeding that culture into the Jews. Um, one funny story was they built a gymnasium um, in Jerusalem, and um, they, they didn't uh, part of the, it's really weird, but part of the Greek culture in gymnasium to go in the gym, you had to be a man in order for everybody to know you're a man. They, they would literally be naked to go into the gym. So you have naked people walking around. That's the point, which is very much against Jewish law. Public nudity is very much against Jewish, Jewish law. And, and I think it might even be partially against some of our laws in the United States occasionally, depending on which agenda you're from. And so, um, anyway, <laughs> I better be nice. <laughs> and so, and they had idols and all this kind of stuff. And so there's this revolt. It's known as the Maccabean Revolt. It was led by a priest, Matthias. And, um, and they drive out this culture. And this is in 163, 167, right in there, B.C. Um, out of that culture, though, there emerge three sects. S-E-C-T-S. Everybody okay? Um, and uh, it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And they kind of represented the three schools of thought. All of them really were motivated by preserving Jewish law and Jewish custom. They were all a little bit distinct, though. The Pharisees believed in the Torah and also the oral tradition, and they believed in the resurrection and the afterlife and angels and demons and those type of things. Uh, the Sadducees um, did not keep to the oral tradition, but they did hold in high esteem the Torah or the law, but they did not believe in the afterlife, angels and demons. They did not believe in the resurrection, thus they were sad, you see. Good pastor jokes, everybody, but you'll never forget it, will you? And I've done my job. Anyway, so my work here is done. And then the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were like the purest, um, and they were, without any disrespect, they were kind of like an Amish type in that they were, they were separatists, in, in that they kind of moved out of the population, the populated areas, um, and they held to these teachings and lived in communities and, and those type of things that held to the, to the law of God. But here's the cool thing. I don't know if you know this. If you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls because of the Essenes. And so they moved to, from Jerusalem to Qumran. That was one of their colonies. And that's where we found all the caves of the Dead Sea Scrolls, etc. Right? So anyways, so that's kind of the three sects. And um, now they're asking Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, and they give him these, these inquiries about should we pay taxes to God or to Caesar, and, and then, you know, the resurrection, and who, who you'd be married to in the resurrection, that kind of thing. And Jesus is answering all these questions. And then we get to 
uh, verse 34. So why don't you stand with me and we're going to read from God's word. Matthew 22, verse 34. It says this, but then the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees and they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, now I don't know why Matthew makes this note. Matthew and Luke call him a lawyer. Mark calls him a scribe. I don't know why it was important to them. Maybe he had a really cool commercial. Anyways, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, th this is what they expected, by the way. They're like, hey, this guy's a teacher. He's a rabbi. We're going to ask him. Now, this is something you, you need to know about the, the Jewish, like the, the, fed, the Pharisees, is they, they would play these games like because they had turned the Ten Commandments into 16, I'm sorry, the Ten Commandments into 613 different laws and like rabbinical laws. And they would play this game like, can you name one commandment that will encompass the most laws, right? So this was, a, a, it's weird. You play different games, Pharisees are weird. Anyways, and so, and so th this was one of those things. But they, always the greatest commandment was love God. So they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And they expect him to say, love God, because it's the only thing that he can say, right? But then Jesus continues. He said, this is the greatest in the first commandment. And then he continues. And the second is like it. Now, probably in Aramaic, but definitely in Greek, which we have the New Testament, Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic. But in the Greek, this word in the second is like it means to put it on par with. Literally, he is escalating this and he is making a very emphatic point that, and it's the point John actually makes in one of his writings later on. But actually what he's saying is, don't tell me you love God if you don't love people. That's essentially what he's saying here. And he's saying, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And then Jesus dropped the mic. Because he's like, I summed up your 613 rules with two commandments. I'm bad to the bone. That's what he was saying. And so today in this, in this series, Christ versus Culture, here's what I, I have a question. That's, we're going to answer this question together and the title is this, What is Love? What is Love? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, today from your word. Give us clarity. Give us wisdom. Give us hope. Give us peace. Let our lives never be the same. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing for God's word. All right. What is love, right? What is love? Baby, don't hurt. You wanted to sing it, right? Come on, you can do the club mix. You know what I'm saying? Like, a lot of songs about love. Love is all you need. I want to know what love is. What's love got to do with it? Anyways, we're, we're going to love me tender. That's a different series. That's a totally different series. Relationship series coming, everybody. We'll do that. Yeah, praise the Lord. Anyways, um, Love me tender. Um, what is love? I think our culture is incredibly confused about this. Incredibly confused about what love actually is. In fact, we live in a culture that tries to define love by love. This doesn't work with anything. You never define a thing by the thing, right? If someone came to you and they said, hey, what is a tree? You'd say, it's a tree. Because in our culture, that, that doesn't, or I should say, that doesn't make sense to us. But in our culture, that's what they've done with love. Because we have this phrase in our culture, love is love. Well, that doesn't make sense. You can't define a thing by a thing. You can't. Someone says, hey, what is that? And they're pointing to a car. Like, what is a car? And you say, well, a car is a car. That doesn't make sense. A hamburger is a hamburger. A hot dog is a hot dog. And now everybody's hungry. You don't define a thing by a thing. But in our culture, we're so confused about love that we've tried to define the thing by the thing. And in our culture, you hear this all the time, especially around one, independent, one particular agenda, being the LGBTQ agenda, you hear love is love. Now, the reason they defined it that way was because it was supposed to be a sense of equality that whoever I love is, is on par or there's an equilibrium here. There's, there's an equality between who I choose to love and who you choose to love. And that was the idea. And unfortunately, as humans do, we pervert everything. And the love is love mantra has now shifted in 
pedophilia and people are trying to, in a way, make that seem okay because after all, love is love. You see, when we look to ourselves to try to understand ourselves, we always mess up. We always miss it, right? And so we live in a culture where love is love and we live in a culture where love equals approval. If you really think about it, um, and I was thinking about this this week, um, the culture in which we live, especially when you look in terms of sexuality, but really just the culture in general, it's really, a, it's really like we've returned, or it's like, a, it's like a new, it's a neo-paganism. It's like a new paganism. In fact, if you look at our culture, because people think everything's new, but if you look at our culture and you go back to the Bible and you go back like to, to Corinth in the first century, you're going to see the same culture, just a different place, different name. In fact, Paul talks about paganism to the church of Corinth. And in that world, in that culture, it didn't look too much different. In fact, in fact, Paul even talks to the church and he says, hey, you're doing some things, and specifically sexually, you're doing some things the culture's not even doing. Like, you've totally messed up. And when you look at our culture, to me, that's what I see. It's like a neo-paganism. And it's a culture where we worship sex. We're more, we're more enamored with sexuality and gender and anatomy and all that. It's, we worship sex. We, we use people and we love ourselves. Self-love is one of the mantras of our culture. And when we look at the gospel, here's what the gospel teaches. The gospel says, worship God. Love others and use sex to procreate, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. Because a total perversion of values. And because of that, we have a culture trying to define a thing by a thing, trying to define a thing by a feeling, trying to find a thing by an attraction. And they're like, well, love is how I feel. Love is how I'm attracted or what my attraction is. I need to love myself. And if you love me, that equals approval. And what I would say about everything that I just said right there, none of those are accurate. None of those are right. And none of those work. And so when we're talking about love, how do we understand love? What is love? Well, a couple things. Number one, these are not the points. I'll get to the points at the end. We're just going to talk for a minute. But one of the first ideas I'd like to give you when you're talking about this issue of love is that when we're talking about love, love is not love. God is love. Love is not love. God is love. You can't define a thing by a thing, right? Love, love is love? No, that doesn't make sense, right? Doesn't make sense. But according to the Bible, this is according to John, here's what he says. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Now, there's a lot in this one sentence. Because God is love. Look what he says. The, in, the, in, the last four words, because, last three words, God is love. First of all, John is telling us love is not love, God is love. But he's also telling us anyone who does not know love does not know God. In other words, not only is he telling us what love is, he's telling us how we know love, how we define love, how we see love. See, you remove God from a culture and you can't figure love out anymore. Are you with me? You remove God from your relationship, you can't figure it out anymore. And so the truth is, John's telling us something we all need to hear, and here's what he's saying. If you want to know love, you have to know God because God is love. And the only way to know love is to know God, and, and all love comes from God. Without God, you really can't love. And without God, you can't know what love is. There, there's a lot in that statement. He's like, hey, love comes from God, so let me give you... One idea to think about, if God is love and love comes from God, check this, listen, then love has to look like God. If it doesn't look like God, it's not love. So when we're talking about what is love, baby, don't hurt me. Well, baby, you're always going to get hurt if you think love is love. When you understand God is love, there's a safety in that. There's a security in that. There's a peace in that. Life makes sense in that, really. Because when you understand God is love and love isn't love and love comes from God, then love has to look like God. 
And when you understand that, then you understand this, that love is not self-serving. Love is self-sacrificing. Love is not self-serving. Love is self-sacrificing. Let me say it another way. Love is not about loving yourself. Love is about giving yourself. Because our culture is all caught up on self-love. Like it's, I remember, you know, 10, 12 years ago when self-care, and that was a big one in the, in the church. And, and time out, let me say something. I, I'm not against self-care. I think there's an application there. Okay, so I think we have to be like, like for me, I do some things that are, are caring about myself. Right. And, and I mean, I get sleep, I exercise, I try to eat healthy sometimes. And um, at least 20 percent of the time I try I'm on. They say 20, 80. Right. I think I may have gotten that backwards. But I think if you eat healthy 20 percent of the time, then you can eat unhealthy 80 percent of the time. I think that's how the math works out and not at all. But anyways, um, you know, I, I talk to my counselor. That's something I do. But the reason I do those things is because when I'm a better me, I can love others better. When I'm a better me, I have more to give to the other people around me. When I'm a better me, I'm a better husband. I'm a better father, right? I'm a better pastor. And so there is, a, there, there is an application for self-care, but that self-care has now grown into self-love. And you hear this in culture, like love yourself, self-love, love yourself, self-love. Well, let's think about that a minute. Here's what I think is interesting, because I sit around and think about things. And I don't know if you think about these things, but um, I do. I think about these things. And, and I thought, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? Because self-love is the culture's answer for this feeling of self like self-deprecation or whatever. And they feel like, because I feel bad about me, I need to love me more. I think really that's where it comes from. And if you think about it, we have we have more, we're struggling more with mental illness than ever before. We're struggling more with anxiety uh, than ever before. We're struggling more with depression than ever before. And some of the highest numbers for anxiety and depression and those type of things are coming out of agendas that really are anti-God, whether they say it that clearly or not. So the farther we get away from God, the more those numbers of anxiety, depression, self-loathing, all those things go up. And so the cultural answer, remember, because we can't, once we remove God from culture, we can't know love anymore. So then our answer is, since love is love, love yourself. The problem is loving ourselves is not changing any of those dynamics. It's making them worse. <laughs> Listen to me very carefully. You are not a God. And since you're not a God, you shouldn't be worshipped and you shouldn't worship yourself. Because when you think about it, like, you know what I call worship? It's love expressed. And when we love God, well, how do we express that love? We worship Him. Love expressed, right? Here's the problem. What's self-love? It's all about expressing love to myself. What's another way to say that? Worshiping myself. This is the Genesis 3 problem, by the way, just in different verbiage. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve basically had two choices. Worship God, honor Him, and obey Him, or worship yourself and do what you want and love yourself. They chose love myself, do what I want, worship myself, and humanity has been in a death spiral ever since. And if it, it, listen, if that was the great departure from God that wrecked humanity, do you really think you're going to fix your life by loving yourself more? In fact, I have a theory. So it's a little, it's not complex. I can explain it. I know it's a holiday weekend, so I'm just saying, if you'll lean in two seconds, I'll make this make sense. But I was thinking about this because I think about stuff. And I'm like, why are people so self-loathing and so self-deprecating? like never before have I seen. And I thought, oh, one thing our culture has done. See, what is, think about this, what is the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's, here's that, that's actually good news. Why is that good news? Because Christ came and paid for the sin of all. Okay, now think about how the Bible in the New Testament, how it makes the gospel work. 
the Bible says that we were all like, you know, and, and again, in our culture, we're, we have done away with God. So we've done away with what we would call the doctrine of original sin, which says we were all born in sin, right? In fact, there's Christian movements like progressive Christianity that have done away with original sin, saying, no, we're all born innocent. We just, some people go bad, you know, like, and, and they're trying to get away from original sin. What's stupid about that is if you get away from sin, you don't need a savior. So what's the answer? Oh, I just become my own savior and I love myself. And we do it in the name of Christianity. It's the same thing. Are you with me? But here's the problem. Think about this. If God subjected creation to futility in the fall, and part of that futility was we know we're guilty. In fact, according to the Bible, Romans chapter 3, God gave the law to show us we were guilty Not because the law was going to save us, but because once we knew we were guilty, we would turn to the one who makes us innocent, who is Christ. Okay, now think about this. So if God, if you will, subjected subjected us, creation, to this futility of knowing we're guilty, and we all have a sense of knowing we're not quite right, and knowing we mess up, And knowing we make mistakes, another way to say, knowing we are sinners. So if there's a knowing that God has given us and he has all of creation to know we're not right, to know we're sinners, to know we're guilty, but we remove from culture the one who makes us innocent, no wonder we live self-loathing lives. Because we know we're broken and we know we're guilty, but we are without hope because we have removed the one who saves us, who justifies us, who cleanses us, who redeems us, who makes us a new creation. We have removed the one who takes our guilt and takes our shame and took it to the cross and washes us and makes us holy. We have taken the one away who declares you are innocent and you are loved. And we wonder why we're dealing with all this self-loathing. And the only thing culture can offer you is you. Christianity offers you Christ. Culture offers you you. Now, who's better gonna, who, who is better going to fix your problem? You or God? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? And so the message of the gospel, what does love look like? Well, according to Jesus, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Love is not about self-love. It's about self-sacrifice. Love is not about loving yourself. According to Jesus, love is about giving yourself. That's what. So when we say, what does love look at? We'll look at Jesus. That's what love looks like. That's what love looks like. So, so what is love? But then after that, so what does love do? See, this is the unique thing about love. Love is not ethereal. Love is activity. To say I love God and not love who I haven't seen, John said, and then to not love my brother who I have seen, that man, he says, not, not being honest with himself. So the truth of the matter is we look at God and we say, well, what is love? Well, this is self-sacrificing. It's, it's, this, it's, it's God. It's his goodness. It's, it's him forgiving us and cleansing us and, and coming to earth as us. And it's all those things. But then we have to, when we, when we look at that, we have to realize that love wasn't just a, a feeling and love just wasn't an attraction. But love was a motivation and love was an action. See, the truth of them is, is that love is actually activity. In fact, this is what John says, 1 John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk or Instagram, but in deed and in truth. Do you just see what he said? He said, if, if you're going to love someone, if this is what love looks like, right? He said, then little children, let us not love in word, not, a, not just in talk. But he said, indeed, and in truth. In other words, love motivates and produces activity. 
That's what love does. And, and, and how can I say this lovingly, humbly, lovingly, humbly? That's one of the ways we see love is by what love does. That's one of the ways we feel love by what love does. It's one of the ways we know love by what love does because love does something. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because they're like, what's the greatest commandment? Love God. Right? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, now, let me tell you what he didn't say in that and what he did say. Because if you're, if you're legalistic, you hear, oh, I prove my love for God by what I do. That's not what he said. He said, if you fall in love with me, the commandments get easier. Do you see the difference? He's like, he's like hey, you, you don't do all this stuff so I feel like you love me. You fall in love with me, you do the stuff. Okay. Um, so the other day, so I like to buy flowers. I do. You can ask Jan, I like to buy flowers. Not in a weird way. I'm not weird about it, okay? I, I mean, that kind of sounds weird. I like to buy flowers. <laughs> I have a problem. No, I mean, I like to buy Jana flowers. Maybe that's a better clarification. But I like to buy flowers, and, and I don't, I'm not weird. You're not going to find me in, you know, a flower place sniffing plants and filling of leaves. And I'm, not, I'm a guy, okay? I don't, that's weird. I don't do that. But I like to buy her flowers. I like to buy flowers. Um, by the way, pro tip, guys, the best time to buy flowers is uh, when they're not expected. Just a pro tip, things I've learned, just trying to help a brother out, right? You get, I mean, Valentine's Day is great. You know, anniversary, those, those are great. But, I mean, just, you know, 18 bucks at your local grocery store buying some nice flowers on a day that it's not even needed, guys, it'll make your night better, okay? So what I'm saying is I like to buy some flowers. And so, <laughs> and so with, with, uh, the other day, I was, I was driving by a grocery store I drive by every day, and I just had this thought. I thought, I haven't bought Jan flowers in, in a while. I want to buy her some flowers. Now, I was not in trouble. It was nobody's birthday. It was no anniversary. I just want to buy her flowers. Now, when I go buy her flowers, I don't just go grab arbitrarily or, you know, just flowers or whatever. I, I walk in, and, and I kind of wait for the ones that speak to me. Yeah, it's a weird thing that I have, okay? Because I want them to have some significance when I give them, right? So either they make me think of her or they're the season that we're in or the season of the year, like spring or whatever. So I find this little fall bouquet. It had these fall flowers, colors all in it. And, you know, it's hot as hell outside, but I wanted it to be cold. I wanted it to be cold. I want to look at these flowers and I want to smell pumpkin spice. You understand what I'm saying, right? <laughs> And so I wanted it to be cold, and they were beautiful fall flowers, and college football was kicking off this weekend, and I was like, oh, we need fall flowers, we need fall colors, she was decorating the house, and so I just bought these, and I brought them to her. Now, when I brought them to her, I didn't say, see, I love you. I wanted to prove to you that I loved you. And I knew if I bought you flowers, that would prove my love for you. No, it was, I love you, I bought you flowers. The love motivated it. It wasn't a legalistic motivation of trying to adhere to a law or standard in order to gain love, gain affection, or prove love. It was out of this love and affection came this action of, hey, I should buy you flowers. She does the same thing. She does not buy me flowers. She'll like leave me Reese's Pieces and a little card that says, I love you to pieces. And I'm like, every day is a great day for candy. And so, right? But do you, do you see the point? The point is this, that love produces action. Real love produces action. Listen, real love produces action. And that's really why you're here today. You're here because you love God. You, you could have stayed home. You could have said, it's a holiday. You could have said, we're tired. You could have said, whatever. You could have said, last week, somebody hurt my feelings. Whatever it is, there's a billion excuses for not being here. We know that. But you're here. Why? Because you love God. You didn't come today to prove that you love God. And you didn't come today to gain love from God. You came because God loves you and you love God. And you came to express that love in worship. And it was that love prompted and motivated action and activity. 
And so this is why we need love. Love is all you need, according to the Beatles. But, but this is why we need love, because love, listen, out, love, love prompts the good parts of us. Love gets the good parts of us out. Are you with me? Like, this is what, this is what love does. Now, interestingly enough, when we're talking about love, this is, if I could tell you what love does, love, um, when you love, love acts in the objective good of someone else. What did you think about what I said? Love acts in the objective good of someone else. Notice I didn't say subjective good. Oh. Self-love acts in the subjective good of you towards someone else. That's why it takes, it wants, it wants what's best for me. It does what's best for me. It's very subjective. Love knows there's a standard of good and right and righteous and truth. And that is an objective standard. It's not in me. It is not in you. It is by God. The lawgiver has given us, he has given us law so that we can know good and so that we can know bad, so that we can know truth and we can know error. And love then looks at truth and it looks at good and truth is always good and it acts in that objective truth and that objective love or that objective, the objective truth or the objective good towards someone else. Now, why do I say that? Because we live in a culture that has tried to equate love to approval. And that is not loving. It's, it's the antithesis of. Um, <clears throat> in our culture, there are a lot of people that use these words of Jesus, love your neighbor. And as we talked about, they're not, talking, they're not using them in the context of Jesus. They're, they're trying to justify something that's not biblical, a relationship or an attraction or a lifestyle that's alternate, meaning it is not God's word, it is not God's truth. Or they're trying to tell you to keep truth to yourself. Oh, love your neighbor. That means love does not disapprove. But actually, that's not true. And it's funny to me because I was in a conversation with someone who I don't approve of their lifestyle. Uh, I wasn't being mean to the person. They actually started the conversation and wanted to have a conversation with me and was asking me if I thought their lifestyle was okay. And I said, uh, I can give you my opinion, but I won't. I'll just give you God's opinion, the Bible's opinion. And I would say that your lifestyle is not okay with God. And you can be mad at me if you want to. I'm just, I can take you to the scriptures. I can read it to you. But I, I mean, it doesn't matter what my opinion is. I think what we need is God's opinion. And what they said is, you're not loving because you're disapproving. And so anytime, it's kind of, I don't have time. To, usually I ask questions like, well, tell me what you mean by approving and tell me what you mean by loving. So that's why you're not being loving. I said, well, what do you mean by loving? Well, you're not approving. And so my question was, so do you, are you saying that love equals approval? And they said, yes. I said, I have a question. Do you love me? And they said, yes. I said, do you approve of the standard that I hold to? And they said, no. I said, you just refuted your own argument. Because you said you love me, but you're disapproving of what I think or believe. Here's the problem. They were using this scripture, love your neighbor. So I said, do you know where that comes from? Because Matthew 22 is not the first time it shows up in the Bible. It's actually in the Bible nine times, two are synoptic repeats, meaning that the three synoptic gospels all have this greatest command, love the Lord and love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. So pull those out and we have seven times the phrase, love your neighbor is in your English Bible. Three of those seven times, Jesus is talking about it. But do you know where one of those times is? In fact, do you know the first time? Do you know what Jesus is actually quoting? Did you know Jesus was actually quoting the Old Testament when he said, love your neighbor? He's actually quoting Leviticus, the book we all skip when we're reading the Bible through in a year. <laughs> because he's got a whole chapter on what to do when you get a scab. Right? We're like, ah, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. I know there's rules. Okay, Jesus, there's rules. I got it. There's rules. And on to the next book, right? 
In fact, interestingly enough, and a lot of people will say things like Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Well, Jesus talked about moral sex. He didn't cover all the different ways to be immoral with it. But also we forget Jesus quoted 14 of the Old Testament books and he quoted them as the word of God. And one of those books that he quoted was Leviticus, which specifically speaks to the behavior of homosexuality. But I would also, when someone says, well, Jesus never said, you know, alternate lifestyles, trans and all that. He never preached against that. I'm like, Jesus never preached against slavery. So are you saying that that should be our standard? Anything we can find where Jesus didn't explicitly speak to it, then we should say that's okay? Because that seems a strange way to approach things. The other side of this, the other argument, just so you know, because I like arguing, the, the best part of it, not really, but I like making a point because it's what I do every weekend. But, but Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, so essentially all the moral law from the Old Testament, Jesus upholds when he says, I didn't come to do away with the law. Now, I know there's ceremonial law in there that, that we don't hold to anymore. We're not Jews, etc. But all the moral law, he said, it doesn't end with me. I didn't create, I didn't do away with moral law. I uphold it. So he's quoting, so all the moral law of the Old Testament, in other words, God didn't change his mind on the Ten Commandments just because Jesus came. In the context of love your neighbor, because we got to get to the end. Let me just read to you what Jesus is actually quoting from. Leviticus 19, 17, it says, Do not hate a, fe a fellow Israelite in your heart. So first of all, he says, love and hate are issues of the heart. I think that's a good point. Then look at this. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's look at what Jesus, when he's quoting this, because he's giving God's authority, the word of God, Leviticus, he's quoting Leviticus. So all this now is in play. Are you with me? All my, like, I, we, there was a well-known pastor too long ago who said the church needs to unhitch, quote unquote, itself from the Old Testament. And I'm like, I don't know how you can be that smart and say that because Jesus didn't unhitch himself from the Old Testament. And so Leviticus 19.17, this is Jesus, and he's quoting. He's talking about how to love your neighbor, and here's what he says. Number one, you love your neighbor by not bearing something against them in your heart. In other words, it's not what you say. It's how you feel. It's what's going on in your heart. I think we'd all agree with that, right? And then I'm going to skip this second part because I'm going to come back to that. And then verse 18, he says, and love doesn't seek revenge. I think we would all agree with that, right? And love doesn't bear a grudge, and I think we'd all agree with that, wouldn't we? I mean, it sounds very loving so far, but look at what the part that I skipped that we're coming back to. But here's what love does. Love rebukes your neighbor, frankly, when they're wrong. Or you share in their guilt. So here's what Jesus is saying when he's saying love your neighbor. One of the ways you love your neighbor is to not approve of them when they are going against what is right and going against what is true. And if you do approve, woe to them who call evil good. If you do approve, you're guilty of it. So all these pastors who won't stand up and talk about sin and all these Christians who just try to have this inclusivity with our culture, they'll be judged just as guilty as everyone else. Because truth is truth and love upholds the truth according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Now you need to understand, it doesn't say be mean about it. In fact, people won't be able, it, in fact, if you think about it, it is your love, your self-sacrificing love that makes your truth palatable. Are you with me? So what is love? Well, if I look at God, God is love, right? And God is self-sacrificing, and this is how I know God. And what does, what does love do? Well, love, love acts and one of the ways in our culture, the message we need to understand is love disapproves. I mean, I don't have time to go down this because we've already made the point, but there is no parent in here that would think loving your child means approving of whatever choice they want to make in the moment. 
But yet we've superimposed that on our culture like it's some kind of value that love just always approves. And what Jesus is saying, no, if you really love your neighbor, it means you don't always approve. It doesn't mean you're mean in your disapproval. You don't seek revenge, right? You're not proud. There's one for you. Love is never proud. No, love humbly says, hey, I love you. And I think you need to consider this. Love humbly says, hey, I love you too much to be silent on this issue. Love, love humbly says, hey, I love you too much to see you walking down the wrong road, walking towards destruction, and just be quiet because you want to tell me love means I approve of you when biblically love means I speak and act in the objective good. And that means I have to say that path doesn't work. That path doesn't work. That leads to destruction. So what is love? What does love do? Three points real quick. It's all in summary because we've already covered the material. But just because you need to write something down sometimes. Number one is this. <laughs> then love is volitional. Love is volitional. By the way, all three of these are from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's so, whoever, so whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Love is volitional. What does that mean? Love is a choice. I didn't cover this one as extensively, so let me just say this. Love is not a feeling, and love is not an attraction. Therefore, you don't fall out of love. Love is a decision, and love is a commitment. That's why it bears up under stress and under strain and under adversity because you get up and you say, I am making this a choice. This is my decision. See, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, he's not saying if you feel like it. In fact, he's not saying at all this has any attractional property here, right, as it's used in our culture. He's saying you love your neighbor. He's saying, you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Well, how can he command love if it's not a choice? How can he command us to love if I have to wait until I feel something or have an attraction? It doesn't make sense. Because love is a commitment and love is a choice. And that is why Jesus can also say in Matthew 5, love your enemies. How can I love my enemies? Do you ever feel like loving them? Has anyone ever felt like loving an enemy? Maybe I'm not as saved as you, but I can't think of one enemy I had where I just thought, oh, I just love them. I just love them. They're so wonderful. No, not at all. Quite the opposite. In fact, Lord, I would like to say some things and stuff. Don't look at me all piously, holy and stuff. Come on. Right? No. But when he says, love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy, he's saying love's a choice that you make. Listen to me. In your homes, with your kids, with your parents, with your spouse, love is a choice. Love is a commitment. And that's why Jesus says, hey, this is the first thing you need to know about love. It's not a feeling. It's not an attraction. It's a command. So it is volitional. Here's the second thing. Write this down. Love is motivational. We covered this very much, but love is what prompts the best parts of us. Love is how we get the good out of us. Does that make sense? Love is what compels us. It's what moves us. It's what motivates us. And then the third thing is love is sacrificial. We covered that, but let me say this in closing here. So what is love? Well, love, first of all, is something we receive from God. See, the answer to self-love, or I should say, the answer to self-deprecation is not self-love. The answer to self-deprecation is the love of God. It's receiving the love of God. Because self-love is out of when I don't know my value, I don't know my worth, I don't know what's going on with me, I don't feel good about myself. Those are all things that's 
based in human frailty and fallen nature. The love of God tells me I am worthy, I am valuable, how God feels about me, how God sees me. So the answer to self-loathing is not self-love, right? That's self-worship, and we crumble and fall. Anytime flesh is worship, we crumble and fall. Just watch your rock stars, pop stars, and TV stars. They get worshipped, and they always go crazy. Why? Because flesh wasn't made to be worshipped. Are you with me? And we're not made to be worshipped either, and we're sure not made to worship ourselves. But when we come over here and worship God, and we get our value from Him, and our identity from Him, and our worth from Him, and He frees us, and He delivers us, and He cleanses us, and He makes us holy, and He makes us righteous, right? That's a totally different thing. And so, so what we have to understand is the issue here is not self-love. It's receiving the love of God, and then it's loving others. But you have to understand, because of flesh and fallen flesh, listen to me very carefully, every one of us are going to struggle with these two competing things. Who am I going to love most today? Me, God, or others? Come on. I I don't want you to be too honest because it all hurt our feelings if we're too honest with ourselves. But if we're really being honest with ourselves, flesh loves to love itself. And it will love itself at the expense of itself. And it will love itself at the expense of others. And these are conflicting values And the answer is coming back to God, worshiping God, receiving love from God, and making a choice of living a self-sacrificing, self-sacrificial, self-giving life of loving others and loving God. See, sometimes I think the answer for love being a self-sacrifice or being a choice is sometimes in making that choice, in choosing God, in choosing others. I can't choose myself. And sometimes that's the best thing for me is to not choose myself. You hear what I'm saying? And so today, as we close, I want you to stand and I'm going to ask our prayer team to come. And we're going to pray today. But I think... Categorically, there's two ways that I want to pray. And that is they're 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 kind of they're based on what we're talking about, but over here you have I think there are a group of people that truly are struggling with just some self-hate, maybe some self-loathing, just just kind of beating yourself up. I don't have value, I don't have worth, and the enemy is just beating you to death with that. And I want you to know the answer to that is not trying to love yourself better. The answer to that is letting God love you better and receiving love from Him. As the Bible says, the love of God then is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then I think there's another category of people, and and maybe we're just struggling because truthfully, if we kind of look at our lives, we've kind of been saying, I love God, but we've really been loving ourselves a lot. And maybe God needs to put, make some shifts and put some things in order in our own lives to where we make some choices to love others better, make some choices to love family better, make some choices to love God better. Maybe we, we choose to serve. Maybe we choose to give. Maybe we choose to help a neighbor. Things that we kind of pass on because we're trying to take care of us, but truthfully, we need to love others. And so I just want to put those out there. I'm going to pray for both of those today. And so, Lord, as we look to you, God, I, I know there are people in this room that are really struggling, God, and they're just dealing with some, some hatred turned inward. Lord, they are judging themselves, and, and God, it's, they're being brutal, and it's, it's ugly. They just have those feelings self-deprecating ideas and thoughts and feelings and maybe even suicidal ideation and and God that is not your heart that is not your design God we are all fearfully and wonderfully created by you and we are all desperately loved by you and Lord what I want them to see is that culture gives them the answer of themselves just love yourself better but God you offer another solution And that solution is, let me love you. And God, today I pray they would let you love you. Let you love them. And today they would receive your love, the love of the Father, perfect and unconditional. And God, that you would pour that love out in their hearts today. 
by the Holy Spirit. And I just want to challenge you, if that's you, I just want you to let God love you. Just receive the love of God and realize you may say, well, I don't feel worthy. I don't, that's okay. None of us feels worthy. None of us feel accepted. None of us feel good enough. The Bible says when we were at our worst, he came and he loved us. We were powerless to change ourselves. He came and gave himself for us. And so today, it's not about how you feel about yourself. It's about the fact that God loves you completely, wholly, desperately, thoroughly, unconditionally, and letting him love you. And then God, I pray for the other group of us, Lord. Some of us, maybe we've been loving ourselves too much at the expense maybe of other people in our lives or even reaching other people or loving other people or even serving the body of Christ and loving the body of Christ. We just kind of been putting ourselves up there first and God ultimately that doesn't work. And so Lord, for us, we just say, forgive us. Lord, help us to love the way you love, to give the way you give, to commit to others, to make decisions. Love is not easy but it's worth it. And so, Lord, help us to serve, to give, to go, to love. And, Lord, fill us up with your love so we have something to give. And, Lord, I just thank you for what you're doing in our church. I thank you for this message on the clarification of what love is and what love does and what it looks like and how it works. And God, I just pray over our church that we be a church, God, that knows we are loved by you and a church that loves others as ourselves. God, I just thank you again for your goodness and your grace and your love. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Come on, can you give Jesus praise today? Hey, Pastor Marty here from Pathway Church. And I just want to say thank you for joining us. And I want to encourage you to get connected and stay connected. And there's several ways you can do that. Number one, you can download the Pathway app and we are all the time offering resources and information on that app for you. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you do, make sure you click the bell so that you never miss any life-giving and life-changing content as we add it to the channel. And then also, uh, make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook. Look, our hope and heart for you is that you walk in the purpose for which God made and created and redeemed you for. We love to connect people to purpose. We thank you for giving us this opportunity. And if you're ever in Longview or you are in Longview, I'd love to invite you to join us in person each weekend. Listen, I pray God's best for your life. I believe if you follow Jesus, your best is ahead.